Good morning. I'm going to read from our scripture reading today, but just first, just wanted to say a little bit about why we do our scripture reading in this way. So at Village, we believe the Bible is central to everything we do. Central to everything we do. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people, that's us. And it shapes everything we believe and everything that we do. The Bible's God's word, his gift to us, the church. Because of this, after I've finished the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we will all respond together, thanks be to God. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Hebrews 5, verse 11 to 6, 12. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to know, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Um, a few weeks ago, I gave Alan the option of either preaching last week's text or this week's text, and hindsight tells me I shouldn't have given him that option, because this one's a diffi- difficult one, um, and I'd rather he preach it than me, but um, he chose wisely. So. Um, this is the third of really five warnings that you get in the letter to the Hebrews, um, and Just like any warnings, uh, they're not meant to be kind of easy reading. Um, They are meant to be difficult 
Um, they are meant to kind of take us by the shoulders and, and shake us a bit and kind of wake us up from our slumber. Um, because what he's talking about is, uh, is of in eternal importance. Um, let me remind you the, the first two warnings that we've got so far. The first one was in chapter 2, that warning against neglecting such a great salvation. Um, in that passage, remember, he urged us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The second warning was in chapter 3, uh, kind of into chapter 4. It's that warning against unbelief. So in chapter 4, verse 12, he, he, he urged us, take care lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, which he again says, leading you to, to fall away. Um, and he exhorts us to, he tells us to exhort one another daily that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's these warnings against kind of drifting away or falling away. And this one is, is, is a similar warning, but it's concerning what he says is a dullness in your hearing. Um, this, this sluggishness that is really preventing you from growing in your faith. It's preventing you from progressing um, and, and maturing in the Christian faith, which, as you see, is a, it's an extremely dangerous place to be in. Um, Andrew Murray, he wrote, not the tennis player, the theologian, um, he wrote, this dullness of, of hearing, this sluggishness, it can render your soul incapable of entering into the full meaning of gospel truth and blessing and often leads to an entire falling away. Um, these warnings are extremely difficult, but they're extremely important to, to, to listen to. Um, let me pray first before we uh, dive in. Father, we love you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us by sending your son, uh, by giving us your word. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for even these difficult sections that are hard to hear, but um, are, are for our good. Um, so, Spirit, we'd ask for your help again this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts. You'd soften us this morning um, so we can receive this wonderful news um, and leave more um, just in awe of Jesus. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, over the past two weeks, Thomas and, and Alan really brought us through chapter 4, ver, uh, chapter 4 verse 15 to chapter 5, verse 10. Um, where really the, you see the writer is really beginning to dig into this teaching of Jesus as our high priest. It's going to be a common, it's kind of his big teaching. We're going to be uh, talking about this for a few chapters. But remember that theme uh, of Jesus is better. So last week, Alan uh, showed us that ever since sin entered this world, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, we've been in need of a, of a representative. We've been in need of what the Bible calls a high priest, someone really to... Um, bridge this gap between us and our sinfulness and God and His holiness. We need someone to, to deal with our sinfulness so that we can experience closeness with God again, friendship with God, intimacy with Him rather than enmity. Um, we need someone to deal with our sins in order to do that. Um, and, and the writers, he's telling us that Jesus is the ultimate person to do that. He's the, he's, the, he's the ultimate, he's the better high priest. He's better than any priest that came before him. He's, he's the perfect and final high priest, so there won't be more after him. And, and we'll get more into that in the coming chapters, but he's really intro, introduced us to this idea of Jesus being the, the better high priest and by, by telling us how he is different from the previous ones. 
So the previous high priests, they came from this uh, tribe of Levi. They're, they're descendants of Aaron, who was the first high priest. He's saying Jesus is different from them because he comes from a, a different line. He comes from the order of this person called Melchizedek. That's where Alan got us to last week, chapter 5, verse 10. Let's pick it up from verse 11. Actually, read from verse 9. Um, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So you can see he's, he's, the writer's beginning to get on a roll. He's beginning to kind of get um, into this idea that Jesus is the high priest, but he's, he's, he's different from the previous ones because he comes from this order of Melchizedek, and he's, he's excited. It's almost like he's saying, man, I have a lot to say about this, this teaching about Melchizedek. It's really, really important for you to understand this. I have a lot to say, but I'm not going to go there quite yet because you're not ready for it. And you see, there's a problem in this church, and the problem was that his listeners, or at least some of them, were spiritually immature children who were still living off of milk. They are incapable of digesting the meat of God's truth of Jesus being this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so instead of continuing on with this Melchizedek teaching, he, which he, he will get into this in verse 7, he stops doing that and he turns to his audience and he confronts them about their problem of their spiritual immaturity. And you'll see, I've had this on the screen, there's these three clear sections that we're going to look at. Firstly, you have his confrontation with his audience. Uh, he's essentially saying, you are spiritually immature. He's confronting them with this. And then he gets into this kind of stark warning in verses 4 to 8. He says, and this is what you're in danger of because of your spiritual immaturity. But then at the end, he, he ends with this encouragement, this exhortation in verses 9 to 12, where he says, but I have confidence in you. Let's look at that first section, his confrontation. Uh, verse 11, we have, about this, we have much to say. So about what? This, this teaching on, uh, this deeper teaching of Jesus, the, high, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we have a lot to say about that, but it's hard to explain to you. Why is it hard to explain? Well, he gives us the reason why it's hard to explain. Um, and the reason it's hard to explain isn't because it's difficult to explain. It's, it's kind of uh, unexplainable. It's also not because his audience is not smart enough. They're, they're not educated enough or their IQ isn't high enough in order to be able to understand. That's not the reason. The reason he gives for it being hard to explain is because they have become dull of hearing. In other words, they've become spiritually hard of hearing. And he feels that his listeners are incapable of following or really appreciating such a spiritual truth. Um, he says, you have become dull of hearing. It's, this is a common theme in the letter, isn't it? We kind of lose this when you kind of break it up into these sections over a long period of time. But when you just read it all in one, you really pick up on this theme of God speaking and the importance of us listening to his voice, listening to his word. So this is how it, the, the letter began in chapter 1. It said, God has spoken to us in his Son, in chapter 2, he continues by saying, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Uh, make sure you're listening intently. Chapter 3, he says, today, if you hear his voice, he repeats that several times. Chapter 4, the word of God is living and it's active. This is an obvious theme of, of God speaking 
and, and us not just listening to his voice, but, but uh, responding in obedience to it. And he's saying here, what I'm about to tell you, it's hard to explain because you have become dull in your hearing. That word dull, it's the exact same word in chapter 6, verse 12, as sluggish. It means you, you've, you've become lazy in your hearing. You've become uh, sluggish. You're just leisurely about it. There's no more earnestness in your hearing. You're not sitting on the, on the edge of your seat uh, just waiting to hear what, what, uh, what, what God is saying. You're just, you're just comfortable. You're, you're fine and you're, you're happy with uh, your current state. Andrew Murray said, no teaching can profit where the heart is not wakened up to hunger for it as its necessary food. That's why he's saying, you're not going to appreciate what I'm going to tell you about Jesus' high priestly status. You're not going to get it. You're not going to appreciate it because you don't hunger for it. You're sluggish in your hearing. You're not doing what I told you in chapter 2. You're not paying much closer attention to what we've heard. And in chapter 12, he continues this admonishment and he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Um, He's telling them, you've been part of this for long enough that you should be teaching others. You should be teachers by now. But the very opposite is the case. They needed someone to, to kind of go back and teach them the basic principles of the Christian faith again. Notice he says again. So they were, he's like, you, you've been taught this. These, these fundamentals, these kind of ABCs of the faith, you've received that instruction already, but it's almost like you need to be taught them again. Um, he's describing this level of immaturity among his readers Spiritually, he's saying, you're acting like babies. You're, you're still kind of suckling at, at a mother's breast. You're unconcerned with the, the rich and, and hearty foods at the adult table. He's saying, you should be on solid food by now. You should be at the adult's table, but you're not. You're, you're still drinking milk like a baby. You, you, you should be able to teach by now. You, you should know Jesus well enough now. Your love for Jesus should be deep enough by now that you are just overspilling to others. You, you should be contributing to the family rather than just always consuming, which happens, doesn't it? Um, it, it might um, describe some of you. Always just content with the milk. Always, um, you're never getting beyond that stage of being fed. You know nothing of what it means to, to feed others. Uh, now, now, is he saying there's anything wrong with being a spiritual baby? Absolutely not. Like everyone at some point um, is going to be that. He's just saying it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to revert back to that. That's unhealthy, isn't it? Even in, in nature, um, everyone in this room was a baby before, right? Imagine that. You were all cute and cuddly. That's normal. But then what's also normal is you grow up. You, you, you don't... You don't stay as a child, you mature into adulthood. Um, but that's the difference in nature is, is we all do stop being babies at some point. The proof is, is you're sitting here. Um, you, it's, it's just a matter of time. But that's, it doesn't work like that in the Christian faith. It's entirely possible to remain in a sickly infancy your entire life. 
always needing help instead of being a help. And, and, and the author says that, that spiritual immaturity, the cause of that is because you have become dull of hearing. It's because this, this you being stuck in this sickly infancy is because you are dull in your hearing. You're, you're sluggish. There's an, kind of an indifference to, to your listening to what God is saying. Not only is, is that the cause, he says that there's also a consequence to this spiritual immaturity. And he says in verse 13, the consequence. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. You're still on milk, and the result of that is you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. What does that mean? If you keep reading, verse 14 kind of helps us explain what he means by that because he gives us the opposite of it. Um, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, If your sluggishness in your hearing results in you being a spiritual child, and and really the consequence of living off milk is you being unskilled in the word of righteousness, well, the opposite of that is true. That, That for those who have matured in their faith, for those who have moved on to solid foods, to, to the deeper truths, well, they have powers of discernment. They, they, they can actually distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong. Spiritual babies can't do that necessarily. Um, this is what it means to be spiritually mature. Not that you know it all, but that you can discern between right and wrong. Do you understand how important this is for us? Because the vast majority of your lives, like 95% of the things that will happen in your life today the Bible's silent on. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to mature in your faith so that you can know what is right and what is wrong. The path of wisdom really concerning these gray areas of life. And that's true for us, isn't it? Like, you can't open the Bible and it tell you when too much Netflix is too much Netflix. Like, the Bible's not going to tell you if you should buy those boots or not. If you should buy that house or not if you should go after that job or not, if you should propose or not. But we are told that as you continue to mature in faith by eating solid food, as you grow up in the faith, as you move on to the deeper truths, you will be equipped with powers of discernment, with a sense of wisdom to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. In other words, you will know how to make the right choices when confronted with critical decisions. And remember their specific context. This is really important in order to figure out why he is telling them this. Um, remember this audience. The church is, um, used to be Jews. They have declared Jesus to be their Messiah. They're believers. They're Christians now. They're part of the church. But because of that, they're experiencing hardship. They're they're experiencing persecution, which means that they're in danger of giving up because it's getting hard. Um, They are in danger of neglecting this great salvation of Jesus. They're in danger of of packing it all in and reverting to their old ways. And if you allow me to use a a religious word, they're, they're in danger of apostasy. 
Um, apostasy is what the author, what he was talking about, about back in chapter 3, verse 12, when he said, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So remember that, that word fall away. It's not that, oh, you were trying so hard, but then you slipped out of his hands. No, it means you have revolted. You have turned away. You have withdrawn. You have abandoned Jesus. And he's saying that's what, you, that's what his, his audience is, is in danger of because of this hardship. And that is why he's admonishing them for their spiritual immaturity. It's because he loves them. It's because he doesn't want them to fall away. It's because he's concerned for his brothers and his sisters. George Guthrie wrote, These milk drinkers are in a perilous situation because they neither understand nor have an inclination towards deeper matters of the faith by which one understands the importance and the means of perseverance. The writer says, You need to move on to solid food. You, 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 you need to mature in order that you learn to distinguish between good and evil. You need to be equipped for what's ahead of you. You need to be equipped for the trials that are coming your way. It's time to grow up in the faith. These more advanced truths, like the, the, this teaching on Jesus, heavenly priesthood, it's not just like, hey, it's gonna be, you might find this interesting. He says, it's crucial for you to know this. It's valuable to you. They are necessary for your sanctification and for your perseverance, for your holding fast to the end. The author wishes to challenge his readers with this image of maturity so that they might wade with him into the deeper waters of the following chapters. His hope is that they will repent of their spiritual immaturity, grasp hold of the deeper matters of the faith, and ultimately endure in the face of persecution. And and please hear me when I say this. What we're not talking about is your intellectual ability. Some of you, I've had conversations with some of you that just, you say, Man, I'm just not that good of a reader. I, I, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm kind of educated or, or, or witty enough. The writer is not talking about your intellect. He is talking about your heart. Does, does your heart, does it thirst, does it hunger for the deeper things of Jesus, the spiritual truths of God revealed in Jesus? Do you, like Paul, do you count everything as loss compared to just gaining more of Jesus, compared to, 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 to knowing him by faith that you might know him and the power of his resurrection? Or are you just happy with where you are? The writer's saying, if your heart is thirsty, if your heart is hungry for more of Jesus, then brothers and sisters, be ready for the Spirit of God to, to bring you, to lead you into maturity regardless of your intellectual ability. He's saying there are trials coming your way. There are difficulties. There's, there's societal pressures coming into your life. There's family pressures there is persecution that will tempt you to give up on this faith. You need to be equipped in order to persevere. It's time to move on to maturity. So he says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, he continues. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance of dead works and of faith toward God, 
and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Um, I'll get into that second half in a, in a minute, but he begins by saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Firstly, notice he includes himself into this. He says, us. So he's, he's like, I need, to, I need to hear this again as well. I'm, I, I myself can be in danger of kind of reverting back. We are one body. We are in this together. Um, but he says, it's time to get up and go to the adult table. And um, Notice that although he said, you need to be taught again the basic doctrines, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, okay, so let's go back to the beginning. No, he says, it's time to get up and move to the adult table. Let's get up, let's move where they are serving solid food, food that is for the mature, food that, is, that, that will give you help to understand, to, it will give you more strength, it will help you persevere. And don't be confused by hearing what he isn't saying here. Because um, that line of, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ can be a little bit confusing. And what confused, what confused me when I first read that is, well, back in chapter 3, verse 14, he kind of said the opposite. He's, he kind of urged us to hold fast to our original confidence firm to the end. So is he contradicting himself here? That word elementary is the same word as um, the, the, that original confidence firm to the end in, in the previous section. So is he saying we are to hold fast to that, or is he saying that we are to, to leave these things? Well, the second half of verse 1 kind of gives us the answer, where he says, not laying again a foundation of these elementary things. So he's not saying they're bad. He's not, he's not saying that they're less important. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying they are extremely important, but they are merely a foundation upon which to build on. And, the, and there's, we, we have architects, we have builders in our church, and I think any of them would say, you don't need to lay a foundation more than one time. Like, if you, if you, lead, if you lay a solid foundation, well, then it's time to build on it. And th- this is what he means by kind of leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ and going on to maturity, progressing on uh, to, to maturity. It's time to build on that foundation. And, and the second half of verse 1 and verse 2 Really, he's just, what he's doing is he's just giving a list of some foundational doctrines that, they, that are these kind of foundational things that they are to build upon, kind of leave from there. Uh, most scholars agree these are kind of six foundational doctrines paired into three groups. I, I, I think they're specific because of their kind of uh, Jewish background, but here's them broken up on the screen to help you understand. He's saying, don't lay again a foundation, firstly, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So... As you all probably know, repentance from, this is kind of the basics of entering salvation, isn't it? Repentance from your works that are getting you nowhere and placing your faith in, in God instead. He also said, number two, don't lay this foundation of instructions about washings. It's, it's literally baptisms and the laying on of hands. So he's talking about the, the kind of public confession uh, of the faith and this connection with the church. Go read the book of Acts. There's a lot of laying on of the hands when you come into the church, when you're empowered in the church. And the thirdly, he says, don't lay this foundation again of resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. There, he's essentially pointing forwards. Like, this is where we end up because of our faith in Jesus, resurrected from the dead and experiencing eternal life with him. These are incredibly important. 
just as any foundation is to a building. But the writer is saying, if you're merely contempt, uh, content with them, then you are in a dangerous condition. He says, you need to, you need to move on to maturity. Um, and I love that he gives that little line of encouragement in verse 3 before kind of diving into this warning. He says, and, and, and this we will do if God permits. So he's, 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 he's seeing, and I'm confident that God will do this. God will confident, uh, will lead us into maturity. A little kind of nugget of encouragement um, is there before he looks at this warning in verses 4 to 8. Because it's heavy. Um, let's look at it. Read from verse 4. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, there's that word again, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to, be cur- to being cursed and its end is to be burned. It's a tricky passage, isn't it? I think I can see how it would be easy to read that and on the surface conclude that he is saying that you can lose your salvation. It's, it seems to be what he's saying, right? You kind of break it up. The way he words it is funny. I've kind of broken it up in different colors here. He's saying, right, that it's impossible in the case of this kind of person, someone who has been enlightened, someone who's tasted the heavenly gift, um, shared in the Holy Spirit, t- someone who's tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. For that kind of person, if they fall away, he's saying it's impossible for them to, re- to be restored to repentance. Sounds like he's saying you can lose your salvation, right? I firmly believe that's not what he's saying here. I'll, I'll try to explain that. Listen to what Jesus says about salvation in John 10, 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that's, what, that's how Jesus talks about your salvation, um, that you are unsnatchable when you are in his hand. And I firmly believe that the author of Hebrews believes that, that, that when you are brought into this great salvation by Jesus, that you are unsnatchable from his hand, that, that if you are a genuine brother or sister, that you, if you are a genuine par- participant in this heavenly calling, that you will persevere to the end, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul said that in Philippians 1.6. I think he believes that, but I don't think that's what he's describing here. I also don't think that he's introducing this new idea to his audience. What he is talking about in this stark warning is something he's already given us an example of back in chapter 3. Remember? He's given us this example of those wilderness wanderers, those people who, he said, were brought out of captivity in Egypt, those people who, who walked on dry land through the Red Sea, 
who, who experienced God's goodness and his care for 40 years in the wilderness, who experienced the power of God and miraculous things, they experienced all of that, yet what happened to them in the end? Their hearts were hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin, and they didn't make it to the end because of unbelief. Which, the writer would say, is proof that they never were genuine partakers of God. That they experienced amazing things. That they tasted and they shared in the goodness and the power of God. But what, ended up, what they ended up doing was, was turning away from God. That's that word falling away again. Revolting from Him. Returning to their old ways. Remember, on the edge of getting into that promised land and saying, stuff this, let's go back to Egypt. And the writer here is saying, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. And this was maybe the hardest week of sermon prep for me yet. And because if you're like me, um, you have dear friends and family that this kind of describes. And people who have tasted that heavenly gift. People who, who did kind of taste the goodness of God, the power of God, but have since fallen away from Him. Who, who now hold Christ up in kind of public disgrace, contempt, put Him back on the cross, don't really care. I think it's easy to get hung up on that word impossible. Um, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance my word for you is don't get hung up on trying to figure out what only God knows. And don't miss, don't miss the point of his warning here. His point isn't for us to, to discern the, condi- the conditions of other people's hearts and whether a, a kind of backsliding brother or sister is, is going to repent or not. And only the Lord knows the state of a person's heart. Your job is not to know the, the, the condition of their heart. Your job is to, to pray for them. But that's not the author's point here. His point isn't for you to examine other people's hearts. His point is for you to examine yours. There's a warning here. In verses 7 and 8, um, those verses kind of mirror what Jesus said in his parable of the four soils. If you remember that, that parable that essentially says this gospel message is going to be scattered out and it's going to land on different soils. Um, essentially, you know, there's, there's going to be some soil, some people that that is going to produce a crop. There, there's going to be some growth there, but Jesus says eventually that growth will wither away, kind of fall away because he says there's no roots there's no, there's no uh, genuine roots there or because it's kind of choked out by thorns and thistles. Uh, for a little while, it seemed like something real was happening there, but it didn't turn out to be the case. This is his warning for his listeners here. Don't be content with where you are. Don't be happy with your diet of milk. You need to mature. You need to move on to solid food, to deeper truths. You, you need to hunger for these things. That's the only true mark of being a Christian, isn't it? The, the only true mark of really loving Jesus is, is you have this deep longing 
You, you have this steady effort to, 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 to get to know him more. And if you don't have that hunger, if you don't have that yearning to know more of Christ, you're in danger of actually being like that land that was unable to produce anything useful. In the end, thorns and thistles, which are useless, which are good for nothing but being kindling. Andrew Murray wrote, in every Christian community, you have two kinds of people. There are some who give themselves up with their whole heart to seek and to serve God. And there are some, there are others, too often the majority, who like Israel are content with deliverance from Egypt and settle down in sloth without striving for the full possession of the promise, the rest in the promised land. It's a stark warning, isn't it? Um, I love how he doesn't just leave them there in that dire picture, does he? This is a pastor. His, his heart starts to kick in, and, and, and uh, he, he turns, and he says this in the next verses, something to, to mitigate or to kind of soften that warning. He, he wants to encourage them with these words. Read from verse 9. For though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, lovely says beloved, it's the first time he says that, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Love that he, he includes this loving, uh, this encouragement, this, this exhortation for them. Though we speak in this way, in what way? In that stark warning, that spanking. <laughs> Though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, my dear brothers and sisters, I feel, I feel like there's something real with you. I feel like, like something uh, genuine is going on in your hearts. Things that are genuine, things that belong to, to salvation. I believe you are part of that great salvation. He's encouraging them here. Verse 10, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. I love this. I think it's so important. And I think sometimes in our kind of reformed circles, we look, we focus so much on our sinfulness, our depravity, and God's glory, that God deserves all the glory. He deserves all the praise. And don't get me wrong, I 100% believe that. But, I, but, but you also need to know that God is applauding you, that, that he's cheering you on, that God cares about what you are doing. He doesn't overlook it. He sees you as a, as a son or a daughter. He sees the love that you have shown for his name and it gives him joy. He delights in that. He claps his hands. This love that you have shown him that overflows in your service to others that you are still doing. That love that you have for him that results in you being more like Jesus, essentially, 
serving and loving those around you. He says, I see that. This is fruit that something better is happening in your life. The author is encouraging them. He he says, you're still doing it. Keep going. Keep pressing on. And verse 11 is his his desire that that each one of you, so notice he's, he's kind of, He's kind of writing to two groups of people, isn't he here? Um, I wonder if he maybe would have broken the letter up into two to write to you guys and then write to you guys, but he doesn't do that. He's, he's, he's writing to them as a whole for everyone to kind of listen in and, and, and kind of discern which, which part they need to hear. Some of you need to hear this warning. Some of you need to hear this encouragement. Some of you need to waken up. Some of you need to get to the adult table to get some solid food in your diet. And some of you need to be encouraged that, oh, there is fruit in your life. And keep going. He says in verse 11, my desire is each one of you show the same earnestness. There's that, that word again, that striving, that diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's his desire for them. Listen to me. God does not want you constantly questioning whether you are in his family or not. God does not want you to wonder if he is really pleased with you or not. It's not what he wants for you. He wants you to have full assurance of hope. He wants you to be confident and firm to the end. But you know what that takes? He says it takes earnestness. It takes striving. It takes... uh, paying much closer attention to what you've heard. It takes considering Jesus. It takes fixing your gaze on him. It takes um, doing all that you can to be with him, to, to hunger after him, to thirst after him. Having this full assurance of hope, he says it doesn't come by drifting. It doesn't come by just being okay with where you are. If drifting in your faith means that you are in danger of falling away, well, it's the striving, it's the earnestness that will give you full assurance of hope. So that, he says in verse 12, that you, you, you may not be sluggish. There's that word again. That's the same word as that dull of hearing. That you may not be sluggish, that you may not be dull of hearing, so that you may not be drifting dangerously. Instead, he says... Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. There's that idea again that your perseverance is a community project. You cannot do it on your own. God says, I'm going to put people in your life that are more mature than you. I'm going to put people in your life that that are examples of having faith and patience and steadfastness and perseverance. These people that are inheriting the promises, I'm going to put them in your life and I want you to, to imitate them. I want you to follow them. Why? Because they're doing it. Because they're, 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 they're following me. Because they're imitating me. And we're going to get more into that in the coming weeks, but today I want you to hear this warning. Waking up. Move on to the mature things, the deeper things, thirst, hunger for more of Jesus in your life. Be like Paul who counted everything as loss compared to this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Have you felt that today yet? Did you wake up today feeling that? 
What about yesterday? How much was that hunger in your, in your, in your heart through the day? And be encouraged, though. I think if this writer was writing this letter to our we church, I think he'd encourage, he'd have that same encouragement at the end. I think he'd look around and say, man, there's some special things going on here. I, I see fruit in your lives. I see examples of you loving Jesus' name, being enthralled with him. I, there, there's evidence that, that this is happening in your lives. It's evident in the way that you are living your lives, that you are loving your brothers and sisters, that you are caring for one another. Keep going, church. And don't be confident with where you currently are, where you currently are in your, your walk with Jesus. The riches of his glory is never ending. Do whatever you can to mine the depths of that glory. You know, we're talking about again a daily abiding with Jesus. It's nothing more important. Um, let's stand and, and pray. And thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for your love for your people. Again, Jesus, we thank you that you are our sympathetic high priest, that you know the struggle. You know how difficult this path to glory is. You know it's, it's not just a, a flippant thing. It's not just an easy thing. You said the, the gate to this way to glory is narrow, the road is, is difficult, but Jesus, we praise you that you have walked it already. We thank you that you have blazed that trail before us. And Jesus, you want us to keep our eyes fixed on you and heavenly things so easy to be distracted the things of this world creaturely things Lord help us to see the promise that we have in you this promise of rest and help us to cling on to hope until the end I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room we're all in different stages I pray for those who are who are babies in the, in the, in the faith I want to thank you for new life. Thank you for those who are just starting to taste your goodness. I pray for those who have tasted that and need to move on, that need to mature. And give, them, give them a hunger and a thirst, Lord. Give them mature brothers and sisters to, to bring them along. May we exhort one another daily. And may we do as Psalm 37 says, may we trust in you 
and do good and dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. May we delight ourselves in the Lord that he will give us the desires of our heart. May we commit our way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Lord, bring forth our righteousness. Bring us through. It's you working in our lives. It's us depending on you. It's by grace we are saved. Help us to cling to you, Jesus. Bring us through. We pray these things in your name. Amen.